If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, why not become a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh? Our membership provides you with access to the RCPE educational portal, the live evening medical updates, and you have options to view the symposia both in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, please go to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Clinical Conversations brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Trainee and Members Committee. My name is Dr. Marilena Giannudi and I am on the TMC and today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Adil who is the Clinical Data and Digital Lead for the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh and he will be speaking to us about the role of data and digital to improve patient care. So Professor Adil, welcome. Thank you Marilena. Can I please start by asking you, what is healthcare data and why as clinicians do we need to give it the consideration that you believe it needs? Thank you. I think this is a very key question because data is a piece of information which we collect in our clinical lives and in our personal lives. But as time went by, we are collecting a lot of data every day and in particular the healthcare data. And I say that data comes in volume, velocity, and variety. But the challenge is that we need to create the value out of data. And this is where the clinical role or the role of clinicians comes into play. That if we know the data is coming in volume, velocity, and variety, then we need to make sure that we should utilize that asset of data in order to improve the patient outcome. And if you look at how things are panning out in the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, that we collect data from birth to grave. And it's a lot of data we collect. But when I use the word data, it is a very generic term. But as clinician or as a healthcare provider, let me give you a very brief overview of what health data is. So health data could be defined where the health data is collected, for example, primary care services, secondary care or tertiary care services, and of course, community and social care services. The other way to look at data is, is it my personal data, which is coming from my lifestyle, how much exercise I do, and most of the time we are carrying some mobile phone or having some variable and some data is being generated from there. Then we also do know that we collect a lot of information and data in relation to broader determinants of health, where you live, your job, your income. And we know the clinical outcomes are heavily dependent on the broader determinants of health. And then the other way to look at the data is that the data which is collected routinely in the National Health Service. So when you go and see your doctor or your healthcare provider, whether nurse or allied health profession, some data is collected, but that is in the routine. But we do collect it on ad hoc basis. And then, of course, our researchers collect data, which is only specific for that research. So bearing in mind that if this is the way we define data, then we need to remember there is some genotype data because now the genetic profiling or the tests which is available to understand your genes are becoming very common and cheaper as time goes by. So we have a lot of phenotype data, which is about our physical health, and we do have a lot of genotype data. So 
if in this way, if we can remember very holistically where the data is coming from and what type of data it is, then in summary, we can say that there are three types of data which might be very relevant for us as a clinician. First one is the clinical data, which I told you it could come from primary, secondary, tertiary care. Second is lifestyle data, smoking, alcohol, exercise. And the third one is social type of data, which means your income, your employment. And by the way, in Scotland, we have divided the country in 6,976 data zones, and a lot of information is collected on people who live in those data zones. Of course, it is a confidential information, not shared on an individual basis, but collectively gives us a very good insight. For example, in COVID time, we knew which part of Scotland the people are being readmitted and why they are high-risk patients. So, I think it's a very long lengthy answer to your question, but it is again my personal passion to ensure that we need to raise the awareness of data to our future and current clinical colleagues so that they can utilize this data to create value out of it. And Prof, can I ask you, the term health intelligence, what does that actually mean and how can we utilize that when we are talking about the different kinds of data that you have explained to us? Right. As far as data is concerned, it is just like a piece of information. If we are unable to use that piece of information to take some actions, then it will remain a piece of information. At times we say that the National Health Service is data rich and intelligence poor. And the intelligence is the applied side of utilizing the data to take some actions which can either improve patient outcomes, provide better healthcare services, do some benchmarking, or make some health policies. So this is what health intelligence is, that it is an integrated approach to utilize data, people, and tools to convert the health data into actionable evidence-based value. So if data can create value for people, can create value for patients, if it can create value for policymakers, then it becomes health intelligence. And for us to be able to apply health intelligence, does that mean that it's purely based on technology? No, I don't think so that this is just the technology because there are three key pillars. First one is, of course, the availability of data. Second one is the people and their skills. And the third one is technology. And the fourth one is data governance. So availability of data is paramount and accessibility is data is paramount. It means data is available, but can you as a clinician or as a researcher access it? So that is where data governance comes into play. Second, do we have people who can analyze the data and create some insight, which could be used, as I said before, to improve patient outcome or to improve policies or do benchmarking or improve quality. And the third one is technology, which is your hardware and software, how you can analyze the data. So it means all four are part and parcel to each other, and they all are interdependent. So if you miss one of those, or if you have got a weak area, one of those four, you might not be able to create an effective health intelligence. And I can give you one example. Diabetes is a very common prevalent chronic disease. So almost 5.4% of the people of Scotland and almost 5% at last in UK have got diabetes. And if you want to use the data 
from the people with diabetes in order to improve patient outcome, then we need to create some health intelligence by utilizing all the data. And interestingly, health intelligence could give you a descriptive intelligence, which means what happened. How many people have got diabetes in Scotland, for example? And as I said, 5.4% or almost 325,000 people having diabetes, or at least we know they have got diabetes. So this is with their age, their gender, and that is called descriptive intelligence. Other one is predictive intelligence. So if we are able to use the data more effectively and do the right analysis, then we might be able to say, what will happen? Who is going to get diabetes? So looking at people where they live, how much exercise they do, what is their ethnicity, what is their BMI, Looking at all those things, if you can combine them, we will be able to say a good estimate who is going to get diabetes. And there are plenty of tools around which can help you to predict your own score that whether you will get diabetes or not. If you really want to use the data more effectively, we call it prescriptive intelligence. It means what is the best outcome we are trying to achieve and how we can make it happen. A good example is there was a tool developed by IBM. It's called Dr. Watson. So what Dr. Watson did, it looked at all the cancer drugs and who had used it, what were the outcomes in America, and then by pulling that, all the data about all the cancer patients, they were able to create the prescriptive intelligence to say, if you have got that particular type of patient, if you use this particular medicine, your outcomes will be better and more successful. So again, to recap, the health intelligence could help us about the descriptive side, the predictive side, and prescriptive. But most of the health system, they are at the stage of descriptive and predictive, but hopefully in future, we'll be able to do more on the prescriptive side. And do you think based on this, we can use this to start thinking about quality improvement and quality improvement projects? Definitely. I think there are many uses of data to create value. First one, of course, effective patient care and treatment, and then quality improvement, performance management. When you say quality, the quality, they've got three dimensions. The first one is the effective care. Second one is safer care. And the third one is the patient experience. So by using the data, we can do all those three much better what we are doing now. So first one is providing effective care. So providing the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. So I already mentioned example of Dr. Watson. I mentioned about the diabetes and we know that which drugs will suit which patient. And there's a lot of work has been done by making the genotype and phenotype data together to improve the patient outcomes for particular diseases. Second is the safety. So the three, four big harms in the national service, or maybe most of the mature healthcare systems are the infection rates, inpatient falls, medication errors in hospitals. All of them had been dealt in the past very effectively by utilizing the data. I mentioned about medication error. So in Scotland, there's a lot of good work has been done, so as in England, to deal with the medication errors. And by utilizing the data, that what type of errors are happening and what are the side effects, how best we can collect the information, and that we need to ensure that our staff is properly trained 
so that they can give the right advice with the right prescription to our patients. And the third thing is patient satisfaction, which is also part of quality, and the data plays a very important role. For example, we do friends and family tests in most of the hospitals when you finish your episode at hospital and you get discharged. You've been asked three questions. This is called family and friend test. So would you like to send your family to the same hospital? And a couple of more questions that also reflect the patient's satisfaction. And then there are PROMS and PREMS. And the PROMS stand for P-R-O-M-S, Patient Reported Outcome Measures. And the PREMS is Patient Reported Experience. So again, a lot of information get collected, disease-specific, which help us to understand, are we providing effective care? Are we providing safer care? And are we providing a care which is improving patient experience as well as patients' own outcomes? So in that way, data has got a big role to play in quality. And the general framework of quality improvement is PDSA, the Plan, Do, Study, Act. So when you do planning at a smaller level as a clinical trainee, where people do work on a smaller issue in a ward, but still you need to have an access to the data. And it brings back to me the question that where you can get the data from, because this is very important that we can say that there's a lot of data. And interestingly, when I've spoken to a number of colleagues who are the frontline clinicians that ask them, look, uh, you are very keen to improve quality and you are looking for data. And then immediately I realized the importance of data literacy. What is data literacy? It is having the skills to understand, access, and utilize the data. Understand, access, or utilize the data. At times people understand it, but they don't know how to access the data. But the good news is, that if you ask the question in your hospital that you're looking for data, for example, the people who have got number of cardiac procedures and the people who have got the particular type of diabetes, the people who have got particular type of arrhythmias, that information get collected, analyzed and pooled, depend where you are in some place. And there is always a way to access that information if you have got the data governance rules being followed. So my advice or my practical tip for the clinicians that wherever you are, you are keen to do some quality improvement. Your first door you need to knock is to go and speak to your data lead within your hospital. And then most of the hospital in England, they have got the chief clinical information officers. They might be a very good friend to you to help you how you can access the data and where the data is available. Thank you, Prof. And obviously you have a lot of experience in how we use data in the UK and abroad. In your opinion, do current medical training programs incorporate data and digital skills enough? Well, it's a journey. If you look at I would call it journey from stethoscope to datascope. So the stethoscope was invented in 1816. So there was a need. Now we are in 21st century. So that particular tool helped us. We were able to diagnose patient better because we could auscultate and we knew that what sort of sound was coming. And then now we use that tool day in and day out to improve patient outcome. But now the future is about data. Because the data is available, but it hasn't been utilized properly. And then the question comes, well, is it because the data and digital skills never been part of the training program? 
Yes, they were not part of the training program, but gradually they are getting into the training program. Because, for example, in 2019, there was a very good piece of work was done in England by the Health Education England called Topol Review, T-O-P-O-L. And I'm sure the listeners can Google and they can get that report. And I will highly recommend it that you should read that if you're interested to improve your own skills. So Topol Review came up with a lot of recommendations how the data and digital skills could get integrated in our routine training programs. Then it's fine. I think we can wait. Certain specialities are a little bit ahead of the curve. They have got data and digital skills already being incorporated, but others, they are trying to follow suit. But if you are thinking that, yes, I've been trained and are a part of the training where there's not much data or digital skills available, but you are very keen that I always say there are two ways to look at it. Know how and show how. Know how, it means you need to have the knowledge about the data and about all the digital tools available. For example, we have been through a difficult time as humanity in the last two, three years, and we faced one of the biggest challenge was called COVID. So what happened in COVID, suddenly we started realizing that digital tools are very important, all those apps. In many countries, you are entering into the airport, they will ask you that we would like to see your app because have you been vaccinated? Then we were able to do telecare, telemedicine because we were not able to see the patients face to face. And suddenly the importance of data and digital medicine came more important. And then people started realizing that we need to upskill ourselves. That is about know-how, but then the show-how, that how best you can use the tools you have got in hand. For example, all the mobile phones and others, which is itself a very good source to provide you the evidence-based medicine. That is, again, a very good way to look at how best we can help our next generation of trainees that they can utilize those tools and they can upskill them. Then the question comes, okay, I have upskilled myself. I have got the knowledge and I've got the skills. Then is there any relevance between my knowledge and skills I have gained with my personal effort and with my career trajectory? So many of the specialities now, they are having the particular subspeciality which says that, yes, for example, in radiologies, for example, in many others, there is a more utilization of data and digital tools. Other is that there are specific roles which are available in the national service and in many other countries, which are underpinned by two big set of skills. One is your clinical skills, where you have done your training as a cardiologist, or you have done your training as pulmonologist, or as a diabetologist. And the other is that based on your health informatics skills. And then giving you an example that in many of the hospitals, they have appointed people called chief clinical information officers. And they are playing a pivotal role in order to utilize the data to improve the patient's outcome by utilizing their clinical skills as well as their health informatics skills. So in that way, if you have got the appetite or aptitude to learn those skills, then you need to be thinking, is it only for a short term? I've achieved some long-term gains in my career. And I think depending on your speciality, there are many, many ways that you can make the best use of your skills, not only for your patients, but in your leadership roles as well. And do you think it's the same in the UK compared to worldwide? Well, this is very interesting. I mean, I'm a big fan of Scandinavian countries because they're very, very good 
and data, for example, Denmark, Sweden, Finland. I mean, I visited Finland first time with a delegation. I just became consultant in 1999. We went to look at healthcare system of Finland. And at that time, there was the Nokia. If you remember, it was a phone company and it was based in Finland. And we visited the Nokia and they said that we have developed a system, which means that the patient can put his diabetes glucose levels every day in the phone and the results goes into the computer of the consultant in our hospital. And 1999, it was very eye-opening for me because I trained as a pediatric diabetologist. And I just realized, my God, it means the patient doesn't need to come to hospital. And over the years, that is a good example that some countries that they put a lot of emphasis to move in that direction. But UK is not behind because, as I said, we collect a lot of data and we need to create value out of it. Topple review and a lot of other initiatives are helping the clinicians that need to start their journey from stethoscope to datascope. And hopefully there would be more career paths. For example, in America, it is a specialty. So in UK, we recently started almost two years back or three years back, Faculty of Clinical Informatics. And if you're interested, uh, please go on their website. It's the UK Faculty of Clinical Informatics. So it means that it will hopefully, as time goes by, will become a subspeciality. So uh, it is a very good time in UK, and I think we can learn from other countries. But our ultimate goal should be that we need to use the data to improve the patient outcomes and to improve the impact by delivering the better healthcare services and using the health intelligence through that route. Thank you. And obviously, you've mentioned the top review. You've mentioned how you really think that this is the future. For junior doctors listening to us, what do you think the best way for them to get even more involved is other than, you know, reading around the subject and waiting for these newer parts of our curriculum to become implemented? Very good. Let me give you my personal example. So I trained in pediatrics and went into public health. And in public health, I was very keen on the leadership and management side. And I realized that data is very, very important. In 2001 and two, I look around, I felt where I should get more knowledge and information. And I realized there's some MSc's master's program in health informatics. And I'm grateful that my organization, the Department of Health of England at that point in time, they were very kind and they allowed me to do my part-time master's in health informatics. But fast forward 2001-2 and now we are 2023, there are many structured programs available, right? So you can do your master's, you can do very taster. For example, if you go on the Moose, which is the free online courses, you will find very good, uh, well-structured programs over there. Strathclyde University has done one. And you can go through that program that will give you a good understanding or it will also help you to see that is it something for me or I would like to have the basics, I would like to have advanced. And if you realize that you have done your personal need assessment that what you are trying to achieve, then you need to think that, well, can I go on some further training? Let me give you some examples, opportunities which are available through Health Education England. They have started and I just graduate digital data and technology scheme. So you can apply for that and then it will give you the grant and will also give you the opportunity to do some training program and it will be properly recognized. Topple Review also helped to create Topple program for digital fellowships. So every year, they advertise it, and I think you can apply for that fellowship. 
and it does not take you completely out of your training program, whichever specialty you're doing. But I think it's a hybrid and that while you're doing your own training program in your own specialty, but at the same time, you could be a topple fellow and then you can do things together. And the third is, for example, it's not all for doctors. And if you are a nurse, there is also a Florence Nightingale Digital Scholarship available. And it means that you can also utilize those scholarship opportunities. So in summary, you have got the taster programs available free of charge, like on the Moose and a number of other platforms. Then you can think about more structured program, which means that you can do some masters or you can go on some fellowship programs. But at the same time, I will also recommend you that you should try to become the members of the Faculty of Clinical Informatics. And by becoming a member of the faculty or the joint Faculty of Clinical Informatics, then it means you will have a regular feedback that what is happening. And they have got a very good tool to assess your own needs. And then they are also trying to develop some standards of education and training for all the skills required for clinicians who would like to follow that particular type of data and digital skills. And then the Health Education England itself has got a very good portal, which is learningforhealth.org.uk. It is an e-learning portal, and there's a lot of information available over there, which you can access as long as you're working for the NHS. And Prof, just one last question on this topic. Other than obviously a desire to want to learn about this, what skills do you think a junior doctor should have or a doctor in any point in their training should have in order to explore the field of data and potentially a career in this? Well, right. I think we as doctors or clinicians, we do have one very inherited quality that may be one of the reasons that we chose that particular field of medicine because we are very analytic look when take history we do the examination then we do investigations and we're very analytic so that means that we have got a little bit better aptitude into data and digital as compared to maybe some other professions so i think we need to build on that and i already mentioned about having the literacy we need to improve our data and digital literacy it means we need to understand how to access, understand, and utilize data. And I think you need to start from home. So whichever specialty, whichever hospital you are, I think my message to you would be to test it out, how much you would like to learn and use data. I just ask that, is that data is available? Where it is available? What format it is available? Can you understand it? If you cannot understand it, then is there someone around who can help you? And I'm sure, as I said, there are chief clinical information officers and your hospitals and your medical schools. They do have people more exposed to data skills. You can go ahead and contact and then test it out for yourself. Great. Thank you. And if we just move on slightly from that now, what's your opinion on the regulatory frameworks that are already in place when we're using data and technologies in healthcare? I think that's very, very important because when we develop a new medicine or new vaccine, we always like to ensure over the years, over the centuries, that those drugs and those devices should be safe. This about the digital therapeutics or digital medicine, if I use that broad term, it is the same approach to those tools which are available to improve the patient's lives through data and other tools. So basically, we need to be thinking software as a medical device. 
So that is a term being used very clearly that you only collect the data through a software. And there are broadly, we divide the software into two groups. One is software as a medical device. The other is software not as a medical device. And if software acts as a medical device, then it needs to go through a regulatory framework or regulatory process. Currently, we are following the European Union's approach, which is called CEMAR. It stands for European Conformity Mark, CEMAR. But this scheme is going to finish because we are out of the European Union. This is going to finish by the end of June. And from 1st of July, 2023, the UK will have its own regulatory framework for companies who are developing software as a medical device. And then there are three categories. The class one is low risk, class two, little bit more risk, and the class three is very high risk. And the application is the same that you need to demonstrate that you have got the clinical evidence that device is safe for the patient. So in summary, that there is a good framework in place, both at this side of the Europe, but if you cross the Atlantic, go to America, then the FDA, Food and Drug Administration Authority, they are doing exactly the same. They have got a very good framework to assess the apps, to assess the tools, to assess the ways the data could be utilized or the software as a medical device. Then they are only proving those which they feel that they are safe. And could you maybe give us your insight on how ethics is dealt with when we're dealing with the healthcare data and technology? Is it the same as in with human research? Is it different? How does it work? I think for last couple of decades, as we start collecting more data, more variety of data, then we started asking the question, can we share this data? And that is where the biggest ethical question comes into play. Whose data is this? So data save lives. We all know this. But can we share the data? Who we can share the data? Which data we can share? The sensitivity of data, the personal data. So these are all the ethical questions. But everything is underpinned by, like, for example, we donate blood, right? As human beings, we feel that data, our, our blood will save someone's life. This is exactly the same thing that data save lives. But when we give blood, there are certain check and balances we do that, yes, are we fit or healthy, who we need to give our blood to, and that we know that we can only give blood through the national organization wherever we live in the world. The same thing applies for the data ethics. So data governance is important. That can we share my data, who I need to share my data with, and very important that what is the benefit it will bring to the patients? So what we say, if your data will get automatically shared, at least I'm talking about the UK position, if it is used to give you a direct care, for example, if in Scotland you call 999 and ambulance come to pick you up, then we have got something called summary care record is the minimum data which is available and the ambulance staff can access that data. For example, you might be allergic to penicillin, and the ambulance staff will need to know that they can't give you penicillin or some other things which might be relevant to your clinical outcome. So we call it that this is the direct care. So you go to hospital, your data will get shared because you might have treatment in the past, which might have an implication to your future treatment. But the other thing is that the data for wider use, we call it secondary use of data. So one is the primary use of data, which is providing you the direct care, which is not much ethical issues over there. But the secondary use of data, that is where all the ethical challenges are. 
And I'm sure it is almost the same way, like when you're doing the research, you need to take approval, you need to follow the data governance. Well, now we have got Data Protection Act of 2018, we call it the DPA, so you need to have those approvals. But there are ethical challenges, but there are also the laws and the governance system in place in order to deal with those challenges. Thank you for that. So in your view, what are some of the stumbling blocks that we may come across for the implementation of having this data-driven healthcare in the UK? Well, let's go back. I mentioned there are four pillars for data or digital tools to improve patient care. Availability of data, the people's skills, data governance and technology. And I think the challenges come in all those four fronts. So availability of data. So clinical data is available. Lifestyle data is available in pockets. And social determinants data is also available in pockets. But the question come, can we access that data? So, for example, in Scotland, when I was medical director for Public Health Scotland, we had a good service, and I trust it should still be going that service. We called it EDRIS, Electronic Data Research and Innovation Service. It means if you want to access the data, we created one-stop shop. You phone or you send an email and say, I'm a clinician, I'm a company, I would like to access the data. So we try to overcome that barrier. So in one way, I'm trying to say, which are the barriers, but I'm also trying to give some example how we could overcome those barriers. So Idris is a good example. could be a one-stop shop where anyone who might not have a good understanding of data and how to access it, they should approach people around who can help. So that is about the accessibility of data. Second is the people's skills. So it's not about doctors, clinician skills. I'm talking about analysts. A good example is that we trained a lot of analysts in our universities. They are data analysts. Their skills could be used in the health sector and their skills could be used in many other sectors. Interestingly, our offices of Public Health Scotland are very near to Royal Bank of Scotland. And I remember that there were a number of data analysts came and we might have at that point, one of the biggest data analyst team in the country, in the UK, maybe there are over 200 people for data analysts or relevant data fields. They worked with us and sometimes they leave us very quickly and then you realize that they have been picked up by other industries. And we need to be thinking that, first of all, how we can motivate our graduates who are getting into data analysts or a relevant skill field and attract them into the health sector so that they will have a bigger pool who can help the clinicians to create health intelligence which can help to improve patient outcomes. So that is on the people side. Then come the technology. So I mentioned about Denmark and I will be happy to give more example what Danes have done. But interestingly, in our health system, if you pick up England, for example, every hospital almost have a different EPR, electronic patient record. Someone has got Sonar, someone's Apex, someone has got the homegrown one. Data is being collected by different softwares, by different systems, and then how best we can bring those data together or how we can integrate the data. And that data integration is a challenge. And then people say that, yes, I think that a lot of work has been done in the last 10 years, and then it means that we can link the data, whether they're coming from different systems. So that is on technology. And again, technology is a means, but not the end. Some healthcare systems or organizations, they put a lot of emphasis on technology, but they need to remember the culture. 
We need to develop the culture of the data and the digital means to improve the patient outcomes. And if we can develop the culture, it means that can we create a conducive environment for the clinicians and they can utilize those tools. I can give you one example. I was a board member of the Royal Liverpool Hospital a few years back, and we were trying to buy the new EPR, electronic patient record for the hospital. And we felt we need to go and visit a hospital who have got the best record or they're utilizing it in the best possible way. And we went to Spain, Marina Salud Hospital, and there is an organization called HIMSS, H-I-M-S-S, and they have got a maturity index from level one to level seven. And if you're level seven, you are utilizing the data and your tools in the most effective manner. So they were level seven. I met a clinician and he told me his story in two sentences. He said, uh, since my hospital established this system which is making my life and my patient's life easy, I am getting more motivated and more productive. And he said that I can access all the record of my patient while I'm on the beach. And if I'm on call, I do not need to come to hospital in order to access all the information. And it means that I could be more effective wherever I am. So you can see the flexibility that's created. And that is the culture. And so they gave the ownership to the clinician and whenever any hospital, any organization trying to develop technology, they need to put the clinicians, not the doctors, but the nurses and the light health professions on the steering wheel so that they should steer the project rather than the technology people. But they can help the technology people that what sort of things we need, which is going to make our patient outcomes better because they are the people who are going to use that technology. And last but not least, the data governance. Again, we need to make it easy. Because it is a very fine balance to think when to share the data, who to share the data, and which data could be shared. On the same note, the downside is if you don't share the data, data save lives. It means that exactly in the same way, if you don't get AB negative blood and the patient die in some patient do die in certain parts of the world, then it means same position that if we are unable to develop new medicines, unable to develop the new vaccine because the data wasn't available for and because all those vaccines were developed for COVID because we made that data available because there are certain flexibilities given for data governance in order to share the data for sake of humanity. And you could see the result that within a year, all those drug companies were able to develop those vaccines because they were able to share the data. So in summary, these are some of the challenges, but there are the means to overcome those challenges and we need to keep ourselves motivated. Thank you, Prof. Thank you. I guess we still have so much ahead of us and we just all need to work together to focus on familiarizing ourselves more and wanting to learn more about it so that we can utilize it in a better way. Definitely. So Prof, I think that's the end of my questions. I just want to take the time to thank you on behalf of myself, on behalf of the TMC and on behalf of all our listeners for taking up your time and for a very interesting discussion. And you've given us so much food for thought and I'm sure we're all going to be going away to read all the resources that you've recommended. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I'm so pleased that I'm able to share things with you. And I trust as a leader, you will go and lead by action so that whatever the data and digital tools we have got in hand, if my conversation has helped to move in that direction, that is the biggest reward for myself. Thank you.
Thank you so much. And what I'll do for our listeners is for the resources that you've mentioned, I will make sure that I will post the links in the footnotes of the podcast. So please feel free to have a look at them in your own time. Thank you so much again, Prof. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.